Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm here with a guest I'm very excited about, Bruce Deerstein, who two years ago came out with a book that is one of the most fun and exciting history books I've ever read, The Spirit of New York. And I interviewed him at the time it came out, and he had so much more to say that wasn't fit in the book that we thought we should talk to him about some of it. And he came up again in our newspaper, those of you who are reading it this week, about the Constitutional Convention, just talking to our reporter with facts like in 1967, of the people who voted in New York, about half of them, of the voters, didn't vote up or down on the Constitutional Convention. He just knows things like this <laughs> that I think can shed light on our current situation. So welcome, Bruce. Well, thank, thank you. you. I'm honored to be here. I would just love to start with a little bit about your history, because another time I've intersected with Bruce was for our Keepsake Graduation Edition, where he wrote about his education at Burn Knox Westerlo, and to this day, I am still hearing from people that just treasured that piece. So can you just tell us a little about where you grew up and what your life was like? Well, sure, sure. I uh, was uh, born in Burn, New York, right up the hill from Altamont, where we're sitting today. Uh, grew up there, wonderful place then, a wonderful place now. Uh, we still have the uh, family farm. I went to a school at what was then called Burn Knox, now called Burn Knox Westerlo. I uh, got a wonderful education there. I uh, recall it very fondly. Recalled it for the um, Enterprise in an essay on our f- the 50th anniversary of our uh, graduation. Uh, now it's been 55 years, <laughs> and I still look back very, very fondly on everything uh, in, in Burn. Uh, I was very lucky to grow up with a great family and a great town. I went to a great church and a great school. Lots of greatness. <laughs> so what Lots is it that yes. made you become a historian? I understand you were the first person in your family to go to college. And, you know, from a small school like Burn Knox, that was quite a leap. Well, yes, it was. Actually, I had a cousin who went to college, a little older than me, but I was the first in our part of the family. Uh, and my uh, father was always interested in history, but my mother even more so. Uh, and she's the one who pushed both me and my sister to go to college, got us interested in, in uh, history and things of that sort. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Part of it is going to a great school where they taught uh, a lot more New York history than they, than they now do because of changes in the uh, state curriculum. And I think another part of it was growing up in a historic town. Uh, Bern, as, as some of your listeners know, maybe most of them know, it was the capital of the anti-rent wars in the middle of the 19th century, which actually is, is covered in my book and was the largest tenant rebellion, uh, arguably at least, in United States history. It went on for years and years where hundreds of farmers uh, revolted against paying the rent to... Uh, the uh, landowners who got in the land uh, in the hill towns and throughout some of the other counties in the Hudson Valley uh, through uh, colonial grants actually going back to the Dutch period. And the farmers wanted lower rent, but they really wanted to buy the land. And that was what the uh, protests, particularly in the hill towns more than here, here in Altamont, were about. So 
I kind of grew up with history all around me, uh, a family that was interested in history, and a school that taught it. And then I got even more interested when I went to college, which was Hartwick College in Oneonta, where I had some great uh, history teachers. And then was fortunate enough to go to Syracuse University uh, years later, where I uh, pursued and finally got my, my doctorate. And encountered even more <laughs> great great teachers there who were very enthusiastic about uh, New York history in, in, uh, in particular. So I guess all of those things sort of uh, added together uh, led to my interest in history. Yeah, that's quite a rich history of your own. And I remember you're saying when we talked about it before how right next door to your school was the Lutheran Church that was the like starting point for the anti-rent wars and to have it physically around you. But many people do in Bern and not all of them become historians. So you had something more there that um, propelled you. Well, just a, a quick plug for the Lutheran Church. They've recently got been designated as a um, historic site. They have a brand new historic marker in front of the church. Uh, commemorating a meeting in 1845 of anti-rent protesters. Uh, Prior to that, in 1839, uh, there was a meeting which sort of kicked off the anti-rent wars. Uh, And I say in my book that was in the Lutheran Church. As it turns out, uh, I haven't been able to document that per se. It was in Bern, probably in the Lutheran Church, which was then the the largest building in in town. But Bern arguably uh, had the... Uh, the, the title and the reputation of being the capital of the anti-rent wars. Now, it's it's true that n- not many other people <laughs> pursued the, the route that I did uh, into history. And I'm not sure why that is. If you look at our graduating class, a number of people went on to advanced degrees, uh, computer science, for instance, and, and things of that sort. Uh, but no one, so far as I know, into history. I think it was in part uh, going from, from Bern to Hartwick College, where there was a good history department, and from there to Syracuse University, and then just fortuitously uh, getting a job with the Office of State History way back in 1973. That office has long since been abolished, unfortunately, and then uh, transferring to the New York State Archives, uh, which is which is still there in the Cultural Education Center, and sort of being, again, surrounded by not so much history, but the sources of, of history. So I guess you could almost say history has constantly been in, in, my, in my path or in, on my track or what, whatever you want to say. And I've been, again, I say, I'll say again, I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, I've always wanted to write a book, a New York State history book, kind of a textbook, uh, when I finally got to it some years ago, I realized that wasn't going to be possible. It's just too much to say. So I uh, tried to do the next best thing, which is this book, The Spirit of New York, which is about 16 key events in New York history. And the more I study New York history, uh, the more I become excited, uh, enthralled by it, and, and still am. I'm still continuing to do historical research and um, uh, some historical writing. I think of New York as the as arguably the nation's historically most significant state and the most historically exciting state uh, from the from the time it became a state, which was uh, 1777 and even before, right down right down to the present. Because 
so many uh, important trends and events started here and kind of swept across, uh, swept across the country. So New York, I think, is a natural place to kind of uh, ignite one's interest in, in history. And where we're sitting right now, so we're speaking here in Altamont, Albany County, one of the oldest parts of, of the state, this is a very historic village in the historic town of Gilderland, and right up on, on top of the hill, as we say up in Bern and the hill towns, uh, even, even more history. So uh, there have been a lot of natural connections, things you could pick up on, which inspired further interest in New York history. Well, one of the things that I find so remarkable about your book is a lot of history tomes are kind of lists of dates and events. And you have made what you called eureka moments. You have found things where something was discovered or something changed. And if you could talk about how you came up with that idea as a format, it would be interesting. And the other thread that might or might not go with that that I wanted to pursue when you mentioned your work with the archives is I know you had mentioned to me earlier that you helped author something called Towards a Usable Past so that the state had kind of a blueprint on what to be preserved. And so maybe when you're thinking of these eureka moments or just how how do you come up with them to make history still relevant, and what is it from our past that that you helped outline for the state to save that we need to draw on to carry forward in the future in a meaningful way? Well, I'd, I'd like to say that uh, this suddenly came to me in a, in a, in a dream or, or uh, uh, on high, and um, it, was all, it was all formed. It really, really didn't happen that way. <laughs> Uh, this actually grew out of a, a piece that I wrote for the Albany Times Union where I write as a, as a freelance writer. I'm not on their, their staff or anything like that. On, on historical uh, events, endeavors, parallels, insights, and so on. And I wrote a, an essay for them on kind of key events in New York history, exciting events in New York history. I think I got about seven or eight of them. And it occurred to me, you know, th- th- there's the beginnings of a book right there. Those are really exciting events. Uh, I can expand that list, which I did, uh, and build a book uh, around it. Now, this is a book of stories, and, and you use, Melissa, used the term tome, which I, which I hear and used to hear a lot when I was teaching history. Too much history is uh, historical tomes, uh, analytically sound, uh, lots of facts, not very exciting. History written right, preserved right, uh, preserved correctly, and presented correctly, I think is exciting. It is as exciting, I would say, if you just look at the, some of the stories in this book, more exciting uh, than, than fiction because it's real, live, actual flesh-and-blood people uh, doing uh, sometimes everyday things, sometimes extraordinary things, often in, in my book uh, heroic things, sometimes things... Uh, maybe a little less heroic, <laughs> uh, more more commonplace, but if you can put uh, people at the center of the story, let them do the talking, describe what they saw, what they did, what they what they experienced. I think you've got a winning combination. Now, when I was with the state archives, which I was privileged to be at for for many years, uh, the program was brand new. We were just starting out, and we needed. In the late 70s and early 1980s, some sort of a 
some sort of ground to stand on, a starting point, an agenda, uh, a, uh, something that laid out a vision for what we wanted to accomplish. And so we put together a report called Toward a Usable Past, Historical Records in the Empire State. Uh, I, I wrote a lot of that, but it was really a collective effort, uh, myself, other staff members, advisory boards, members, and so on. And it, it really laid out two things. One, the importance of historical records in New York State, uh, state government archival records, local government records, historical records uh, in historical societies, and so on. And then an agenda for strengthening the uh, capacity of the programs that had them or ought to have them to manage them. If you look back at that report, which came out, I think, 1983 or 84, a lot of what transpired in the late 80s and 90s, and indeed up to today, you can kind of trace right back to that, to that report, including some of, the, uh, some of the programs that State Archives still administers, uh, advisory services, uh, grants programs, and, and the like. Of course, if you look back at it, there isn't a lot in there about uh, computers and uh, technology and so on, because that was just beginning to come on the scene. There's a little bit in there. But as far as, uh, as, far as the vision for, for greatness, uh, with historical records programs or archival programs to match New York's greatness, if, if you will, that's, that's in the report. And that's, quite a, that's quite a few years ago. It's one of the things I'm very proud of, so also are uh, my colleagues at State Archives. Some still there, some have gone on to other things because it was a very good report. We had a lot of good support in those days from the governor's office, from the state education department of which we were a part, and we made a connection to educational uses of historical records, which uh, was one of the, still one of their uh, uh, emphases. And we made some other connections to a good government, economical government, through dispositional records that were not needed as well as uh, preservation records that, that were needed. So, uh, again, it was a, a great opportunity I had, very fortuitous for me, uh, to be able to uh, add that sort of dimension to my already indwelling interest in, in New York history. So you use the phrase, in those days, twice, I think, and also mentioned earlier talking about your schooling being different than now. Is, is there currently, do you feel, a lack of um, regard for history, either in the state's educational system or in its um, archival system? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good question. I, I think uh, there isn't as much history uh, in the public mind as, as there used to be and as there ought to be. And, I, and I'm very disappointed that history seldom comes up when, when people are trying to wrestle with current uh, issues and problems, which, of course, we, we, we do every day. Because almost always there's a historical precedent, there's an insight, there's something you can glean from the past. It doesn't mean the history repeats itself. That's too simplistic, I think. But we can learn from, from the past. Uh, when I was going through school... Uh, at grade seven, in grade seven, it was a full year in social studies devoted to New York State history. And in eighth grade, a full year devoted to U.S. history. Later, in the 1990s, those two were merged in effect, so that 
grades seven and eight were uh, American history and New York state history. But American history, U.S. history, uh, overshadowed New York by a whole lot, kind of pushed it uh, off to the side and into the shadows. There have been a lot of changes since then, uh, including the Common Core, which has come and is sort of now passing from, from the scene. And that changed things some, uh, but I don't think it changed the balance uh, very much. So if you look at the socialized curriculum now, I think it's pretty good on American history. I think it's pretty good on, on, on world history, though I'm, I, I don't know that as well. I'm by no means an expert on that. But New York history per se, is, is kind of gone in, into eclipse. And so, for instance, if you look at New York's role in the Civil War, New York uh, provided more troops, took more casualties, provided more material and more finance than any other state. And in some areas, New York State outproduced the entire Confederacy uh, in some important uh, areas. But we don't know much about that here in, in New York. We know New York was active in the, in the Civil War, but we don't know much about uh, what it was doing during the Civil War or its key importance. There are other things where I think we don't know as much about New York's uh, glory and influence as, as we ought to. If we knew more about it, I think our pride in the state would be more than it is uh, sometimes, because we'd have a better understanding of how important this state has been historically and still and still is. Well, one of the things you just said that interested me, and I had paged through your book and looked, you were talking just a moment ago about issues today either paralleling or somehow being rooted in earlier issues, and some of the ones that just kind of popped out at me, and I wonder if you could comment on any of your all of these, is this idea of immigration and diversity, because certainly that seemed very important um, to New York's history and currently is a hot-button issue. Um, pollution, because there seems to have been debate going on for a long time with that. And then, of course, because we are coming up on the anniversary of the New York granting suffrage to women, and I remember last time I talked to you, you said of all the figures in your book, your favorite one was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I don't know if you can comment on each of those or one of those or anything we might draw from the past that would help us in our current situation. Well, as far as, as, far as diversity goes, the, the, the United States, the country as a whole, uh, I, I think is, has been the most diverse country in the history of the world. But for some reason we constantly return to having these kind of struggles and debates about how much diversity should we have and how much immigration should we have and, and how should we uh, handle those issues. New York State, and in particular New York City, uh, has sort of been on the leading edge of uh, uh, tolerance, uh, uh, inclusiveness, diversity, and so on, uh, from the very beginning, though we think of Dutch New York as monolithic, there's been a study that shows that in what is now New York City, when it was a Dutch period, there were 16 different languages that were spoken. Hmm. Uh, that's where religious toleration was first uh, asserted and, and, uh, and took root. So I think if you look back to New York State's history, and particularly New York City's history, you, you see a... Um, 
kind of a burgeoning of the idea of diversity. On the other hand, you also see occasionally what we used to call and sometimes do call, still do call nativism. And that is one group gets in, kind of comes to dominate, and it's kind of skitterish about the next group coming in. And so for a while, uh, the, the Irish came in in large numbers uh, into New York City in particular. And when they got to be dominant, then they were not quite as tolerant as you might have expected them to be in the next group coming in, which was the Italians and Eastern Europeans and, and so on. And so I think the, uh, the lesson we draw out of that is there's always been a, a, a sort of tension and debate and discussion Right now, it seems to me that debate is not very um, uh, very useful or very good. It's kind of stalled, and we need to get the debate going again about how are we going to balance keeping the, the border secure with our, with our long traditions of letting, uh, letting a lot of people uh, come into the country, because that's what made the, the country uh, great. Uh, as far as uh, pollution goes, one of the uh, chapters in here. It's actually on New York State clean water policy or anti-pollution anti policy in the early 20th century, going back uh, to an executive order by Governor Theodore Roosevelt, who was governor for a couple of years, in 1899, the first executive order that I can find, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right on this, there isn't an earlier one, mandating the cleanup of a lake and a stream which happened to be Saratoga Lake and Catarossaurus Creek, right up here in Saratoga uh, County. And it's a very strong uh, executive order, very strong mandate. If you look at what actually happened, however, the cleanup went pretty slowly. There were appeals. Uh, there was foot dragging. And it took a long time for uh, Roosevelt's vision, if you will, in that executive order uh, to be realized. In fact, it wasn't until 1949, so it started 1899-1949, under a, it happened to be another Republican governor, Thomas E. Dewey, that New York State got its first clean water policy, comprehensive policy. And indeed, today, as, as, as everyone knows, we're still debating such things as cleanup of the Hudson River. Uh, how should we keep waters clean? Uh, in, in various places. What should we do about pollution in, in Hoosick Falls and so on? Uh, I have another chapter in here in the Love Canal crisis in Niagara Falls in the late 70s and early 80s, similar in some ways to what's playing out in, in Hoosick Falls and indeed elsewhere uh, in, in the country where a, a company, uh, in the case of, uh, of Love Canal, uh, dumped things that were toxic, covered them up. It was perfectly legal at the time. Uh, there were very few regulations. Uh, the, the poisonous chemicals began to leach out. People's uh, health was affected. Uh, and then the health department got involved and the federal government got involved. Uh, there were lawsuits uh, and, and so on. And uh, eventually, the company that had, had done the original dumping, which is Hooker Chemical, now uh, uh, Occidental Petroleum, uh, had to pay for the damage that it had done, it had done even though at the time it, it, what it had done was legal. So what, what, do we, what do we learn from that? Well, 
I, I think we learned that if you have toxic chemicals in the vicinity of a population center, and, and if you've been to Niagara Falls and seen Love Canal, it's in, it's in the city of Niagara Falls, uh, that's a recipe for trouble. And we also, uh, I think, can draw from that the, the insight that what seems okay at a given, at a given time later on uh, is realized as being uh, uh, detrimental. Uh, people get sick. And we look back, and, and, this, and Love Canal is a good example of, of, of this, and maybe, maybe Husik Falls and others as well, and we say, well, we shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty obvious now we shouldn't have done it. Then we put in regulations. Uh, in the case of, uh, of Love Canal, that actually led to very stronger federal regulations and the Federal Superfund Act, which is still, uh, still in effect. So it's, it's a case, I guess, of uh, learning the hard way as opposed to kind of drawing things from history that are, are there, which are pretty obvious in retrospect because historians like me and like a lot of others uh, have, have studied them, written about them. So I'm going to take you up on the third prong because we didn't get to that one, which is suffered, you know, the, the women's vote. And we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary, and you had said in this earlier conversation that of all the different people that are flesh-and-blood people that you've brought to life on these pages, if you had to pick one, your favorite was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Could you just talk a little about that? And Well, what, I, what I've said now in, in a number of forums, because a lot of people have asked me this, is if I could go back into history and have a cup of coffee or, or, or a meal or spend a day with any of the characters here, and there are a lot of characters in this book because New York is prolific with characters, mostly good, some not, some not so good. It would be Elizabeth Cady Stanton, whom I consider uh, the most fascinating person in the book and probably the most fascinating reformer in New York State history because she was acting for so long. We, we think of her as organizing the uh, Seneca Falls yes. Convention in 1848, and she was the lead organizer there. But she was on the scene for uh, about a half a century after that, and so she passed away in 1902. She was the important leader, I think uh, more important than Susan B. Anthony, though they were, they were a, a, a pretty uh, close, uh, almost equal team. Uh, she was more, uh, I think, articulate and forceful about women's suffrage, other women's rights, but also things like uh, women's wages and, and so on. And she gave lots of speeches and wrote lots of articles for the newspapers and gave interviews and so on. A lot of them here in New York State, there, there are a couple of uh, very eloquent speeches at the New York State Legislature. Uh, she was active in one of the constitutional conventions. There was some uh, dissension in the movement. Some a couple of times they were kind of split into, into two groups. But she kept at it for uh, 50 years. And the day before she died, uh, she was living with her um, daughter in New York City. She actually wrote one final letter to, to then-President Theodore Roosevelt saying, well, as Lincoln freed the slaves, you, President Roosevelt, uh, should give the right to vote uh, to, to women. That's, that's kind of the upside of the story. The, the, the downside of the story is it took an awful, awful long time 
not till 1917 for this to be achieved in, in this state, and three years later uh, for it to be achieved at the national level. And here New York was not a leader. Uh, it was some of the western states, some of the newer states, some of the fresher thinking states that, that uh, gave, uh, enacted uh, rights uh, right for women to vote long before New York did. And if you look at uh, Stanton's work, uh, Susan B. Anthony's work, Stanton's daughter, uh, Elizabeth uh, uh, Harriet Stanton Blatch, uh, they, were, they were immensely frustrated <laughs> at how slow and, and unreceptive New York State, progressive though it was in many ways, seemed to be on this. And so the Seneca Falls Convention, if you, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, the time period between that and the Seneca Falls Convention, is I think exactly the same time period as between the Seneca Falls Convention and the, the time the women got the right to vote. So in other words... 72 years. Yeah, an awful lot of, of years went by. One of, one of the things that Stanton found frustrating, well, two, two of the things he found frustrating, was that, first of all, people who should have been natural allies sometimes were and sometimes weren't. And so, for instance, uh, she rallied uh, with, with um, uh, abolitionists during the Civil War and right after the Civil War, hoping that the abolitionists would reciprocate and, re and support women's suffrage. Some of them did, but a lot of them, a lot of them uh, didn't. She was also frustrated that some women didn't seem much excited about this themselves. And uh, in fact worked against it. Well, as she was dying, and then as the 20th century dawned, there was an organized campaign against it. In the time period I write about, it was more like indifference, shoulder shrugging, foot dragging, and that sort of thing. Because some women felt, look, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm happily married. I've got a family. And this is just going to shake things up, and people are going to get mad at each other. And so just go away and leave us, leave us alone. And... That's a, that's a hard uh, attitude to understand. It's hard for me, looking, looking back on it. I think it was hard for her and, and her colleagues uh, and also frust frustrating to them. And I think she would, she would say, if she were here in spirit, uh, that's one of the things that held us, that held us back. Uh, there were other times when she went into the legislature, into the Constitutional Convention in uh, 1867, and there would be resolutions uh, to move this ahead or to um, uh, increase women's rights in other ways, and people would be enthusiastic, and they'd give speeches in favor of them, and then they'd go to committee, and they wouldn't be voted out of committee, and it wasn't totally clear who was, who was killing them. At the uh, Constitutional Convention, one of her, uh, she thought, allies was Horace Greeley, who was the great publisher, publisher, reformer, uh, uh, anti-slavery, uh, uh, advocate of, of, of Lincoln, friend of Lincoln, and so on. And he seemed favorable. She even got his wife to speak in favor of it. But then in the end, he turned, he turned against it. He turned indifferent. He didn't, he didn't advance it. So here we are in 2017. It's been 100 years. We have a chance. We have had a chance. We'll 
continue to have a chance at the end of the year at least to look back on what finally worked in in the teens, World War One era, and then 1917, which in some ways was similar to what Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her colleagues were doing, in other ways different. Some ways more in, in the period that where they succeeded, I think more proactive, more militant, if, if you will, more inclined to really get into the uh, the politics behind the scenes, get um, uh, the news media and newspapers mostly uh, behind the cause and, and so on. But I, I've always thought women's suffrage in this state and and across the country is, is a hard thing to understand as to why it took so long when the cause seemed so 100% justified uh, and documented from the time of the Seneca Falls Convention. Just to return to that, if you go back and read that document, which Stanton was the lead writer on, but she had she had help with it, 1848, the case uh, for women's suffrage, I think, is, is pretty clear. It was as clear then as I think it was in 1917 and as, and as it is now, if you want to think of it that way. And yet the... The momentum just didn't gather the way that you might have expected it to, given the forcefulness and logic of the arguments. Well, one of the things you mentioned early in this discussion today that maybe we'll circle back to towards the end now, you were talking about, I think with immigration, how people seem to make more progress on issues. Um, you said something like the current situation seems, I don't know if you use the word stale, but is there something different about many of these chapters you wrote on? There were people with very different views, but yet they found a way to compromise, to come up with something that would allow them to move forward. And it may have taken 72 years in New York for the women to get the right to vote, but it did finally happen. And there's still, of course, more to do with women's equality. But I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts as an historian on what gets a society, you know, not to be so polarized and to actually productively um, have different factions come together and, and move forward. Well, I think if you look back through a lot of the examples in this book and through New York history, and, and just look at the two great political parties, Democrat and Republicans, counterparts be, before that, but Democrats and Republicans in the modern era, the, they often confront each other in debate, and they contest elections, and particularly gubernatorial elections, but then they quietly put aside differences, keep their principles, compromise and, and get things and get things done. I, I think we we sort of lost that in New York for a while. I think we we've gotten it back over the past few years. But the national level it seems to me it's all about it's too much about a confrontation, not giving ground, not compromising, uh, political advantage first, uh, my side is right and your side is wrong. And it's like two groups kind of standing, shouting at each other when they should be quiet, quietly talking to each other and, and negotiating 
uh, with each other. Uh, I don't think that happened just in 2016 at the, the election. I think that aggravated it. I think it had been building for, for quite a while uh, be, before that. There's an old interpretation of, of American history, kind of out of, of style now, which is called the consensus uh, interpretation of American history. And the idea behind that was that all Americans, all political parties, all factions, operate within a broad consensus about uh, the Bill of Rights, individual rights, capitalism, freedom, liberty, and so on. And we do that because, unlike Europe, uh, we never had kings, we never had feudalism, we never had uh, an established group which was in charge of things and then had to be uh, overthrown by, uh, by revolution. And so we have this consensus. Within this consensus, however, we, we debate with, with great spirit <laughs> and uh, uh, energy, but we all basically agree on common things. We sort of have common goals in mind. I think if you look back uh, through a lot of New York history and U.S. history, something like that has been operational, even when there's been an awful lot of uh, political confrontation, uh, debates, uh, contesting of, of, of elections, and so on. Uh, one of the best examples in New York doesn't appear very much in, in my book, but I know a little bit about him from other things, is, is Al Smith. Everybody knows, I guess, a, a great governor in the 20s, candidate for president in 1928, a, a Democrat, come, came out of New York City, no doubt about that, but constantly trying to work with Republicans. Wasn't always reciprocated. Sometimes it was, sometimes it, it wasn't. But constantly trying to work out things like a reorganization of state government in the 1920s, uh, the beginning of the budget system, which we have uh, nowadays, uh, fewer agencies, uh, streamlining of government, and, and so on. So Smith would contest with his opponents at the polls and then try to quietly work with them in the, in the legislature. Uh, another good example of that, I think, would be Nelson Rockefeller, who was a, a Republican, but in many ways as uh, liberal-minded as a lot of his Democratic uh, colleagues uh, and was able to get a lot, of, a lot of things done. Right now, that spirit, well, I think it's, it's kind of coming back to life in New York. I hope it is. We don't see it as much as we should at the, at the national level. Uh, and so we... We oppose and confront and demean and uh, uh, criticize the other side when we ought to be more open to, to, their, to their views and suggestions and so on. I don't, I don't have a solution to that. <laughs> I, don't, I think you can look back to, in, in history and see times that were better than we've got now. You can see leaders that were more uh, inclined to build agreements and consensus than we, than we may have now. And you can see the American people, I think, less divided than they seem to be uh, right now and more, more open-minded uh, and harmonious, uh, friendly toward uh, each other. The, the only time when there was an obvious exception to that, and a big one and a bad one, was the Civil War. 
and I don't I don't think we're anywhere near anything like like that. I hope I hope we're not. But right now we're not we're not talking to each other enough. We're not having enough of a of a dialogue. Uh, we're having some discussions online uh, with things, but what one of the patterns that seems to be happening. This came up in the a conference last week that uh, Paul Grandall uh, organized down at SUNY about uh, the media and uh, fake news and so on, is people want to listen to people who confirm their views of things. They want to watch the news that confirms their views of things. They subscribe to Facebook feeds, Twitter feeds, and so on, which reinforce their view of things. And their view of things too often is, I'm right, and the other side is wrong. Uh, the, the Democrats are right and the Republicans are wrong, or the Republicans are right and the Democrats are wrong, or, 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 what, or whatever. If we could get to the point of looking more at the, uh, the, the countervailing um, uh, evidence, what other people are saying, and be more open to that, uh, I think we'd be, we'd be a lot better off. Well, I'm going to end on that note because that's what we try to do every week at the Enterprise. Yeah, and you do it very have well. meeting ground. But I can't thank you enough. I had pages and pages of questions. But maybe you can come back sometime. Oh, sure. Because there were chapters that you left out that I wanted to hear about. And just thank you so much. I thank really appreciate this. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>